As we close in on Christmas time, in what has been a quick, hectic, uncomfortable year, I wanted to try and find a topic to discuss that would both warm our hearts and lift our spirits. I wasn't able to find anything like that. What I did stumble upon was notes I had made about an interesting, horrific tale from the early 1900s. This story takes place in Calumet, Michigan, a town I've been to a number of times for family reunions over the years. Calumet sits in the Upper Peninsula near Lake Superior. When I say Upper Peninsula, I mean Upper. Driving from the Detroit area to the Mackinac Bridge takes nearly four hours without stopping. When I was a kid, I would think that reaching the bridge meant we were at our destination, the Upper Peninsula. And while it was true that we were in the UP, little could I comprehend that we still had nearly five hours to go. Even in my youth in the 1980s and early 90s, I could tell that being in a town or village like Calumet was as close as I would get to time travel. Mom and pop shops, restaurants with regulars that have been sitting in the same seat every morning for 40 years, polite down-home people who were excited to see a fresh face. I used to think I couldn't live like that. Now, I'm not so sure. Simple and slow doesn't sound so bad anymore. Calumet, Michigan was first settled in 1864. At that time, it was known as Red Jacket. Red Jacket was a Native American chief from the Seneca tribe. A man named Edwin J. Halbert discovered a large area of copper-bearing land. Halbert formed the Halbert Mining Company in order to acquire land rights. The Halbert Mining Company changed its name to the Calumet Company the following year with help from Boston investors. By 1866, the Hecla Company was added to the mix. In 1867, Calumet was incorporated as a town. Halbert was in charge of mine operations, but never had the knowledge to extract the copper. So the board sent Alexander Agassiz, the son of a famous geologist, to run the mines. Under his expertise, both the Hecla and Calumet companies began paying dividends in the following two years. In 1871, the companies merged to become the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company. Eventually, Agassiz became president a position he held until his death in 1910. From 1868 through 1886, Calumet and Hecla was the leading copper producer in the United States. From 1869 through 1876, they were the leading copper producer in the world. Over a 30-year stretch, Calumet and Hecla produced over half the copper in the United States. By 1901, the underground mining complex had 16 shafts, one of which reached a vertical depth of 4,900 feet. It was the deepest mine in the world at the time. By 1902, Calumet and Hecla had 5,000 employees. And the surrounding towns of Calumet, Lorium, and Lake Linden were pretty much company towns. The Upper Peninsula was becoming a sought-after destination for immigrants from Finland, Poland, Italy, and a host of other nations. At their peak, these mines produced 100 million pounds of copper. That was in 1906. By 1912, in response to lower prices, production declined to around 67 million pounds. The number rebounded a bit due to high copper prices during World War I. Unfortunately, after the war, copper prices fell drastically. 1920 in the Calumet area saw many of its residents leaving the mining industry and moving to Detroit, where the automobile industry was in its boom. In 1921, mining was shut down until the following year when Calumet and Hecla merged their mines with neighboring copper mines. The combined operation was renamed the Calumet and Hecla Consolidated Copper Company. 
During the Great Depression, almost all mines were shut down. In 1950, the population of Calumet was just over 1,200 people. Small-time mining continued in the area during World War II and was completely shut down by a labor strike in 1968. As of 2021, the population in Calumet is 685. There's over 400 cities in Michigan alone with larger populations. I have copper in my blood. My grandfather, Toivo, was born in Oscar, Michigan, just a Petoskey stone's throw from Calumet in 1918. His future wife, my grandmother, Alice, was born in Calumet in 1922. My great-grandfather, Anton, was born in Calumet on the 4th of July in 1888. So now you know all about the village of Calumet, a former leader in the mining industry, and my connection to it. Before we get to the subject of this episode, let's bring in a man I discussed way back in Episode 3, The Dust Bowl Concept, Mr. Woody Guthrie. In 1941, he released an album entitled Struggle. Struggle was an album full of labor-themed songs. The last song on the album was called 1913 Massacre. I'll read some of the lyrics to you only because I don't want to be sued by Woody's people. Take a trip with me in 1913 to Calumet, Michigan, in the Copper Country. I will take you to a place called Italian Hall, where the miners are having their big Christmas ball. I will take you in a door and up a high stairs. Singing and dancing is heard everywhere. I will let you shake hands with the people you see and watch the kids dance around the big Christmas tree. You ask about work and you ask about pay, They'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day, working the copper claims, risking their lives. So it's fun to spend Christmas with children and wives. Later in the song, Guthrie sings, Well, a little girl sits down by the Christmas tree lights to play the piano, so you gotta keep quiet. To hear all this fun, you would not realize that the copper boss's thugmen are milling outside. The copper boss's thugs stuck their heads in the door. One of them yelled, and he screamed, There's a fire. Episode 30, The 1913 Christmas Eve Massacre In the early 1900s, around 90% of the area's population was of foreign descent. These people arrived in the area looking for work in the deep, copper-rich mines of the Upper Peninsula. At one time, there was as many as eight daily foreign-language newspapers. It's said that while walking through the streets, hearing English was a rarity. Calumet and Hecla owned all of the land in the area. They leased houses to employees for around $6 a month and helped build stores, churches, a hospital, a library, and schools. The catch was, if Calumet and Hecla needed to mine on your land, they took the property back. Due to a huge surplus of money, it was decided that the Calumet Theater and Opera House should be erected to serve the community. The theater opened on March 20, 1900, with a touring Broadway production of The Highwaymen, being one of the first municipal theaters in the country. They were able to draw in some big names. Frank Morgan, who would go on to star in over 100 films, including The Wizard of Oz, performed there. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. of Robin Hood Zorro and Three Musketeer fame. Lon Chaney Sr., The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera. John Philip Sousa, Sarah Bernhardt, Madame Helena Majeska, among others. Interesting side note. Madame Helena Majeska, who is regarded as the greatest actress in the history of theater in Poland, is rumored to still haunt the Calumet Theater. 
The story of her ghost first emerged in 1958, when actress Adise Lane, playing the lead role of Kate in Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, forgot her lines during a very important part. She claims that it was not until the ghost of Madame Majeska appeared to her on the balcony and mouthed the lines that she was able to return to her performance. Rumor has it that if her portrait, which still hangs in the theater, is moved, that's when unexplicable things begin to happen. Many people have heard music, banging, and moans, and felt cold air from nowhere. As the first decade of the 1900s rolled on, miners in Calumet were recognizing that the job was becoming more and more dangerous due to the depths they needed to go to get the copper. Workers also realized that they were getting the shaft, pun intended, when it came to pay. Rumor had made its way to Calumet that miners in the Montana copper fields got as much as $4 for an 8.5-hour workday. Meanwhile, Calumet miners were working 10- to 12-hour days and taking home only $2.50. Calumet and Hecla was also instituting the use of a heavy and dangerous one-man drill, nicknamed the Widowmaker. With a two-man drill, you always had someone to watch your back. Even then, they were losing a man a week on average. Needing to be alert in the dark, thin air of a mine, having a partner with you was a plus. Between the pay and the Widowmaker, a strike was inevitable. That's when the Denver-based Western Federation of Miners and their president, Charles Moyer, came into town and united the multicultural workers against the mine operators. The WFM had a nasty reputation, and in partnership with the Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, had recently won shorter workdays and higher pay in places like Montana, Idaho, and Colorado. After watching strikes play out in Massachusetts and New Jersey around 1912, Immigrant miners in Upper Michigan became inspired to do the same. By early 1913, there were five Federation locals and nearly 10,000 card-carrying union members. In February of 1913, the miners asked for a meeting with the mine owners, sending along requests for a pay raise to $3.50 a day, a shorter workday, and a return to the two-man drill. The owners of Calumet and Hecla, however, refused to acknowledge the union and wouldn't agree to a meeting. On July 23, 1913, the headline of the Calumet News read, General Strike Begun Today by Miners in Lake District. The article went on to say, The first general strike in the history of the Lake Superior Copper Region, which has long been forecasted, became a realization today. Following a mass meeting of the miners, called by local officers of the Western Federation of Miners last evening, the strike was declared this morning. It wrapped up by saying, the strike is being conducted in an orderly manner so far. That wouldn't last for long. The headline from the following day's paper was in stark contrast to the day before. Sheriff asks Ferris for militia. Strikers attack and injure several men. The subheading read, Serious disturbances at number two shaft of the Calumet and Hecla, where some employees are hurt. The Ferris in the headline was Governor Woodbridge N. Ferris, a one-term governor and future senator from Michigan. The sheriff in this case was Houghton County Sheriff James Cruz, a rotund fella with a questionable record. Cruz wanted the governor to send Michigan National Guard troops as quickly as possible. Ferris was concerned that it would only add fuel to the fire and responded with a no. In the article, he is quoted as saying, I will not send troops except as a last resort to protect lives, property, and men who desire to work. Twenty-four hours in, there had been minimal destruction of mine property, with a few supervisors and some men who wanted to keep working injured by rocks and fists. 
The anger and frustration felt by the striking miners was also due in part to the constant strain of ethnic divisions. Calumet and Hecla handed out supervisor and mine boss positions primarily to Cornish men, immigrant workers from Finland and Sweden, Austria and Italy. Those were the heavy lifters with the more dangerous positions. They felt as though these supervisors looked down on them. Cornish workers were considered company stoolies and for the most part were the ones injured early on in the strike. To Calumet and Hecla bigwigs, they viewed the strike as more of a rebellion than a labor dispute. Originally, Calumet and Hecla's general manager, James McNaughton, who at the time was making $85,000 a year, declined to comment. Soon, it would be reported that he was saying things like, the grass will grow on your streets before I'll ever give in. Soon, the state capitol was flooded with letters from Calumet business owners, lawmen, and Calumet and Hecla higher-ups. After some days, Governor Ferris relented and sent the full amount of the 2,500-man Michigan National Guard to the Copper Country. The militia took over the village, with tents set up in front of mine shafts and on every street corner. Ferris publicly stated that the Guard was there to help maintain order and protect property, not to take sides. In his words, the soldiers were not to act as a police force. Sheriff Cruz didn't believe that the Guard soldiers, unable to take sides, would be effective enough. He'd already deputized roughly 150 local citizens, but he needed more muscle. Cruz received secret authorization from his county board of commissioners, which included Calumet and Hecla GM James McNaughton, to bring in a special team of 52 agents from New York. Agents is a loose term here. The Waddle Mahone Company specialized in supplying strike breakers in labor disputes. The Waddle Men, 52 of New York's roughest and toughest thugs, arrived in Calumet and were told by Cruz that they had any and all authority and could openly carry guns. As anyone who has seen a protest or demonstration knows, the presence of these waddlemen types, whom the Union described as thugs, murderers, and prizefighters, was bound to make things worse. For a few weeks, things remained calm-ish. But in the middle of August, a few of the mines tried to resume business as usual with whatever workers they could find. At this point, it's the middle of summer, and Calumet looks as though a war could break out at any time. There were now hundreds of deputized citizens, primarily Calumet and Hecla office employees. The entirety of the National Guard was still there, along with the Special Forces Waddlemen, who were just looking for an excuse to fight. Even the U.S. Department of Labor had men in town, watching the strike play out, taking notes on the situation. It was around this time that Governor Ferris wrote to Sheriff Cruz. He'd learned of the hiring of the men from the Waddle Mahone Company, who I gather was just a recruiting firm for hitmen and ne'er-do-wells. In the letter, Ferris wrote, In my judgment, there is the prospect of serious trouble because of the importation of strikebreakers or hired police. Sheriff Cruz ignored the governor and kept them there. On August 14th, two strikers walked across mine property and were told that they could not cross the path by a deputized worker. They ignored his order, and the worker then reported them to his supervisor. The deputized worker, another deputy, and some members of the Waddle Mahone Detective Agency were sent to retrieve the two men so that they may speak with the supervisor. A struggle ensued, and the strikers fled inside. The Waddlemen and the deputies surrounded the house and began firing their weapons through the doors and windows. When the shooting stopped, two men who were not even the original targets had been killed, another wounded, and a baby in her mother's arms had been grazed by a bullet. The strikers called the killings murder, and the local prosecutor, Anthony Lucas, agreed. 
Warrants were issued for the six law officers, but Sheriff Cruz allowed the men to escape to an adjoining county. The violence continued into September when both a deputy and a striker died under questionable circumstances. Men and women alike were being beaten and shot at daily as the U.S. Labor Department continued to watch. They reported that the deputy sheriffs and the Waddlemen acted with great brutality towards the strikers. On October 23rd, numerous deputies were seriously injured and 13 strikers were arrested. After marching strikers came across sheriff's deputies who were escorting scab workers to a mine for work. The month of November was quiet, mostly due to the Great Lakes Storm of 1913. The storm would come to be known by many different nicknames. The Big Blow, the Freshwater Fury, and the White Hurricane. The storm, which was technically a hurricane, sprung from a regular phenomenon known as a November gale. Cold air comes down from Canada and meets up with warm air from the Gulf of Mexico. The two don't get along, a fight ensues over the Great Lakes, and there you have it. A November gale, or November witch as it's also known, which is much cooler. All over the Upper Peninsula, streets were blocked, streetcars stranded, telegraph and power lines knocked out for days on end. The ships sailing on the Great Lakes had it worse. During the storm, 12 ships in total sank, while at least 19 others were left stranded. After the feet of snow were shoveled aside, it was revealed that more than 250 people had lost their lives, and millions of dollars in ships and cargo was lost forever. On December 2nd, a miner had his home blown up with dynamite in the middle of the night. Luckily, no one in his family was seriously injured. That same morning, a house in nearby Hancock was shot up by unknown assailants. Things were completely out of hand. Christmas was coming, and there was no end in sight to the strike. On December 7th, three strikebreakers, all Cornish men, were killed as they slept in their home, which had earned the nickname of the English Scab Boarding House. The prosecutor believed that the murders had been committed by waddle thugs to turn public opinion against the Union. Those murders were never solved. Later in December, Michigan's Attorney General visited the area and agreed that a grand jury needed to be brought in to help figure everything out. But at that point, it was too late to stop what was about to happen. There had been striking and unrest and bad decisions being made for over five months. Everyone was exhausted. Strike benefits from the Federation were slow to arrive and in most cases never came at all. Calumet and Hecla began serving notices to miners that rented homes on company land. Stores began refusing credit. Affected also were the children in the area. In order to lift their spirits, the Women's Auxiliary of the Western Federation of Miners organized a party. For weeks, these women sewed mittens and scarves, collected candy to put in treat bags, and even rehearsed a play. The group rented out the Italian Hall for the Christmas party. The hall was a large, two-story wooden building a block away from the fire station. In the lower floor was a grocery store and saloon, but upstairs is where the party would be held. At the top of an eight-foot-wide stairway was a ballroom, complete with a balcony, stage, and a small kitchen. It was perfect for what they needed. The party began shortly after noon on that Christmas Eve. By two o'clock, more than 500 were in attendance, most of which were children. A woman by the name of Big Annie Clements, who was the wife of one miner and daughter of another, helped Santa Claus pass out the sacks of candy to the children. Big Annie, as she was known, 
served as the president of the auxiliary, while also leading demonstrations in the streets every single day. She was an important figure in Calumet. Then, around 5 p.m., as the day turned into evening, a broad-shouldered, well-dressed man with a dark mustache yelled, Fire! and told everyone to rush as he spread open his arms and gestured to run. There was no fire, but there was plenty of panic as the crowd converged into that eight-foot-wide stairwell. What happened after that was nothing short of a nightmare for everyone involved. A woman who had been helping Big Annie hand out gifts shouted that there was no fire. No one listened, so she sat down at the piano and began playing in hopes of calming the crowd. It was too late for that. A few of the stronger miners attempted to slow everyone down, but it was no use. Between the screams and cries, children and women rolled past them down the stairs while others stepped over the ones who had fallen. The men were pushed down to the bottom of the stairwell themselves. The doors to the first floor and outside were locked tight, or possibly, as some would say later, held shut by the opposition. When the doors were finally opened, the first rescuers found bodies at the bottom of the stairwell piled four and five feet high, wedged in so tightly that it was impossible to remove them from the doorway. Eventually, rescue workers used ladders and entered the ballroom through windows, removing the injured and deceased from the top down. In total, 37 girls, 21 boys, 13 women, and 5 men were dead. Now reports do differ, but the final number was somewhere between 73 and 76 deceased. Another group that I haven't mentioned yet that made their way to the Upper Peninsula strike zone was the Citizens Alliance. The anti-trade union group was a longtime enemy of the Western Federation of Miners. Like the Waddle Mahone group, they played a part in disrupting the striking miners. I mention them now because numerous witnesses, including Big Annie, originally claimed that the person responsible for yelling fire was wearing a white Citizens Alliance pin. She mentioned that to the Calumet News reporter on hand at the Christmas party as she was busy calming survivors. By the next day, that accusation was in the paper. Charles Moyer, president of the Western Federation of Miners, called the disaster mass murder and blamed the mine owners. Christmas Day was spent making plans to bury the dead. As telegrams full of sympathy poured into Calumet and news reporters from all around the globe arrived, the Citizens Alliance quickly raised $25,000 for the victims. President Moyer, seeing it as a way for the Alliance to look better in the news, refused the offering outright and called it blood money. Not long after, between 15 and 25 men, most of whom were reportedly wearing white Alliance buttons, broke into Moyer's hotel room in nearby Hancock. Moyer was severely beaten, shot once in the back, and then dragged a mile through the streets to the nearby railway station. Some of the gang of men waved a hangman's noose, hoping to end his life then and there. But he was ultimately thrown onto the train bound for Chicago and told to never set foot in copper country again. The wound ended up being minor, and after surgery the next day, he told the world what had happened to him. Before that day's next edition could be written, however, Sheriff Cruz, Calumet and Hecla General Manager James McNaughton, and representatives of both the Waddle Mahone Group and the Citizens Alliance refuted the claims, stating that he made up the story to further garner sympathy from the public. An inquest began before the new year. The Citizens Alliance was never mentioned by name, which all but exonerated them from any wrongdoing. In fact, blame was never placed on anyone. 
The formal verdict that came out on January 2, 1914 read, The stampede was caused by some person or persons unknown to the jury at this time, raising the alarm of fire within the hall. Fifty-nine of the victims, mostly children, were buried by December 29th. Calumet and Hecla placed a return-to-work order that went into effect on New Year's Day. Anyone not returning to work would have their positions filled. Many miners quit the Federation and returned to work in the mines. In February of 1914, three Waddle Mahone guards and a deputy sheriff were convicted of manslaughter for the murders on August 14th. Two of the six men charged were never apprehended thanks to Sheriff Cruz. After all was said and done, being on strike didn't seem worth it anymore. The miners' spirits were broken, and so was the Union. On Sunday, April 13th of 1914, the strike officially ended when the miners voted 3,104 to 1,636 to return to work. The Western Federation of Miners packed up and moved on to its next cause. Many workers handed in their union cards and got back to work for the same wages and conditions as they left behind less than a year before. Some workers couldn't handle going back to the mines and packed up what was left of their families and moved to bigger cities. Calumet would never be the same. As for the key players in the story, Western Federation of Miners President Charles Moyer was unable to reverse the decline in membership. After a bitter internal struggle, Moyer and his entire executive board resigned in 1926. The Miners Union was eventually absorbed by the United Steelworkers. Moyer lived in relative obscurity until his death. He died in Pomona, California on June 2, 1929. Sheriff James Cruz held the position of Houghton County Sheriff until 1916. Not much is available after that. It appears he moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1920 and was still residing there in 1940 when he would have been 67. James McNaughton, also known as the King of Houghton County, the Czar of the Copper Country, or simply Big Jim, was the third and last known president and general manager of the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company. The McNaughton Cup is a trophy awarded annually to the regular season conference champion of the Central Collegiate Hockey Association. McNaughton purchased the trophy for $2,000 in 1913, the equivalent of $55,000 today, and he donated it to the league. He passed away in 1949 at the age of 85. Governor Woodbridge Ferris served only one term as governor of Michigan. He was elected to the Senate in 1923 and served until his death while in office in 1928. He was one of the presidential nominees on the 1924 ticket, but came in eighth place. In 1884, he established the Ferris Industrial School, which is now known as Ferris State University. In 1980, the governor of Michigan, William G. Milliken, declared June 17th to be Annie Clements Day. A portrait of Big Annie, who became the face of the 1913 strike, was hung in the state capitol, and she was inducted as the first member of the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame. The Michigan House of Representatives described her as one of Michigan's most valiant, yet largely forgotten and unrecognized women. The Italian Hall was demolished in October of 1984. And if we're going to discuss the key players in all of this, then what about the miners and their families? They traveled across oceans to come here and find work. They heard of the copper mines in northern Michigan and brought what little they had with them to the wild, unknown landscape of the Upper Peninsula. They worked hard for a long time until they heard that others were working less, doing the same job and making more. They allowed unions to get into their heads and in most cases never received what they were promised. 
They went from being okay to wanting more to having less. After the strike and the horrible Christmas Eve tragedy at the Italian Hall, some threw in the towel and went back to work, and some packed up what little they had once again and searched for something better. Theirs is a sad tale, but one filled with hope and hard work, a tale about standing up for yourselves when you feel you're being wronged or used. A lot of people got very rich off of copper, all while immigrants from countless backgrounds and ethnicities risked life and limb a mile below the ground. I'm proud to be of Finnish descent, and I love the Upper Peninsula, eating my pasty with a great deal of ketchup. In more recent news, on Friday, May 22, 2021, a fire was reported on the 100 block of 5th Street. Twelve local fire departments ended up responding to the fire. The historical buildings from 108 to 125th Street collapsed during the fire and were considered a total loss. Over 30 people lost their homes, as many of these buildings had apartments above them. The cause of the fire is unknown. Houghton County Sheriff Brian McLean was quoted as saying, It could be arson. It could not be arson, but we don't know. Followed up by, We don't know that it's a crime scene, but we don't know that it isn't either. I was going to tease Sheriff McLean for his laid-back Upper Peninsula response, but he passed away less than two months later, so I'll just leave it there. Whether there are 4,000 people living in Calumet or 400, they'll be just fine. They'll rebuild, and I hope good fortune lands in Copper Country again soon. The piano played a slow funeral tune, and the town was lit up by a cold Christmas moon. The parents, they cried, and the miners, they moaned. See what your greed for money has done? Woody Guthrie from the 1913 Massacre. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, my 30th. Can you believe it? This month marks one year of working on this podcast. I'm excited to see where next year takes us. If you're feeling in the giving mood, Curator135 now has a Patreon. Become a donor to the show and receive special bonuses each month. I'm ready to take this podcast to the next level. As always... Be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. 143.